0: activist who has been in Sacramento regularly to support a bill that would make California the first state in the nation to ban the sale of fur. Recently Cassie noticed the opposition to this bill was growing at public meetings. We were all scratching our heads looking around who are these people who suddenly showed up to oppose the bill when the opposition has been virtually non-existent. Paid protesting is a growing industry. Companies like Crowds on Demand bring paid actors to rallies to inflate the amount of support for events like union disputes or political protests. It's terrifying what money can buy. It can buy people's voices. It can buy people's concerns. We need these real grassroots supporters to show up, to get active, and to speak
1: out. There are thousands and thousands of enthusiastic actors who really love the work and they want to make money, but they want to make money doing what it is that they love. You know, they work for Crowds On Demand, they participate in flash mobs, they sit in on speeches, they'll do protests, and it's a really fun job. They like it, and because they like it, that's why it's so effective in getting the client's message out there.
2: Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak to Jack Raitger and Clack Auden of shifting uncertain situations, or SUS for short. Together with the New Models Discord community, SUS authored Astroturfs of Offense, a made-to-be-shared document that offers discussion, diagrams, and an extensive glossary of terms describing the discrete and disruptive tactics of astroturfing and related phenomenon. It's an information rich text that has great utility for those engaged in activism today. It provides an antidote to the hypocognition or lack of language that exists for such dark practices. You can find the text at newmodels.io, and this podcast serves as a companion piece providing context, background, and deeper exploration of some of the concepts AstroTurfs of Offense covers. We encourage you to distribute the text and share this podcast with others. I'm Little Internet, joined by co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guests are Jack and Clack from Sus. Let's get into it.
3: New model special report.
0: So today we are joined by the Agency of Shifting Uncertain Situations, represented by Jack Ritker and Clack Auden. They're calling in from the U.S. And today we are going to speak about astroturfing. When did the word astroturfing first enter your respective vocabularies?
4: First time I became aware of the term was uh, during the uh, Occupy movement and seeing how the Tea Party was springing up and copying a lot of the same tactics and people started using the word astroturfing. And there would be these uh, Tea Party rallies where everyone would congregate in a field, you know, people in pickup trucks and it looked a lot like a tailgating, like football event, but then people had all these like political signs and it became clear that there was a kind of operationalization of other cultural objects. Like people were were kind of manipulating reality or how people were congregating for like a political means.
0: I love that that even though it's just the parking lot of the football stadium for these meetings, there is still this sense of sport.
1: (laughs) AstroTurfing is... Of course, related to sports yeah. and directly, yes.
0: Well, I want to hear the origin of the term, but Clack, what, what about you? When did astroturfing first show up on your radar?
3: It's interesting. I can't really pin a date or a moment where it started to show up on my radar. I feel like I kind of came to the term uh, retrospectively, actually mostly through the Levine, which is really some of the jumping off point for the discussion that we've had
0: David around Levine. the term.
3: But I guess sort of what came to my mind was quite literal, the actual astroturf in opposition to the grassroots, but probably it was around 2015, 2016, and the run-up to the uh, U.S. elections.
0: Can we do a little etymology of the term astroturfing? I want to get into some of the history of the concept that's behind it, but just the actual word astroturfing. Do you guys know where it came from? With uh-huh. um, the <laughs> and what astroturf itself actually is, and like a, when that term first came to be.
3: Sure, I mean, I haven't actually taken the time or had the interest in doing that with this term. For some historical perspective though, you can look to the claque in France and I think the 14th and 15th century, which were paid audiences who would laugh or cry, sob, cheer, make various noises. Uh, And actually there's a whole repertoire of performative actions that audiences would perform during this period in France. So I think that some of the like, not etymological origins of the word come from there, but some of the inactive origins come from that place.
2: The clack is, it was basically like the laugh track of a sitcom, but IRL when everyone Uh, just watched theater, right?
4: I mean, it was that plus a mob. So they (laughs) would force the performers, the producers, to pay the clack in order for a good reception. Oh. And so it was like a shakedown. It was like if the laugh track was like run by the mob.
0: And, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> laugh cartel. Oh and God. is it true that there yeah. were actually
0: agencies or mob husses or something that manage these groups of clackers? And it started because clack is French for clap, right? So you get clap out right. of like the clappers. But is it true that there were like agencies that actually managed them like at the Grammys, the people that fill the seats? Oh, right. Because it still happens right? I can't actually
3: speak to the France perspective, but I do know that even as recently as 2013 in Russia, Roman Abramov was organizing groups of people to go into the opera and perform the clack roles. Uh, and actually the, the perspective there was that Abramov had a strong identification with opera and its historical importance and how it was connected to a working class sensibility. And after the fall, it became for the elite. And so it wasn't that he was bringing in people necessarily even to extort the performers, but to bring back a subset of people that this art form was intended for that had been excluded and to reintroduce their sensibilities into that activity.
0: Like it's part of the set design almost, like for his pleasure? Well,
2: maybe it was a it's a missing dynamic that right. actually was part of, of the legacy that had been forgotten.
0: Right.
3: Well, yeah, because I mean, basically like the introduction of gas lamps into the opera introduced the ability to dim the lights and that light dimming also had this silencing effect on the bodies. And so the the opera used to be this place where people would go and have a very spectacular experience. They they went, in fact, very often just to be seen. The music was just a background for their ongoings. It was really a place where, like, you would go and demonstrate a place in society. And often you would have some women who would go and like turn their back to the show because they were there to be seen by other people. So through like the dimming of the lights and the control of the environment, those types of listening practices became muted. And there's also a connection there with the idea of the mob and the idea that the mob has this dulling effect. And that also comes out of a certain kind of like modernist sensibility of what the audience is and what their role in an audience is. So there's definitely like a connective tissue with the idea of audiencing and actors for hire in an AstroTurf context.
2: I mean, the clack in a way would be setting like the Overton window for response, like (laughs) volume of response, type of response. Is that an accurate way of imagining it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I Uh, think so. I think it's like functioning the same way that AstroTurf protest functions today in terms of shifting the way an event or situation is thought about in the public imagination.
2: Every every once in a while, even when you're at live performances, there's moments where people are unsure if they're supposed to clap or not, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Clack gets rid of that. (laughs) Right. right? Like uh the hesitation. Like a social
3: lubricant. Like Martin Gore's
0: birthday. Like there must have been a clack that was like, Yes, now you sing to Martin Gore. I think
2: they just need a clack that knows how to clap on rhythm at concerts full of white people (laughs) because that's the most bizarre (laughs) one of the strangest mass phenomenons you'll
4: see. Yeah, I mean, you could hire one. I mean, we <laughs> one of the groups that we looked at, the uh, Crowds on Demand, they hire people for political stuff, but then also just for creating celebrity to ask like really good questions during like the uh, presser. I was watching uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm recently, and they did an episode with like a professional crier, and then like. She starts crying in everyday life to get out of situations. And this question of like her authenticity, you know, comes up. And and, like, that's the same thing with the clack. It's like, how do I know this is a real audience response or like a mob op?
0: Well, I think maybe we should, before we get too deep, uh, recently the term astroturfing showed up in the New Models Discord. And Jack and Clack, they initiated a group discussion about it that grew into a glossary of terms. Do you guys want to speak a little bit about? why we're speaking to you today, what this document is that will be posted to new models. Uh, Give us some background as to why you've spent the last few months thinking about astroturfing.
3: You know, for me, the the catalyst had to do with the resurgence of these small demonstrations for the anti-lockdown protests and accusations of astroturfing. I think that there's like a general frustration with the term just being lobbed indiscriminately, sort of along ideological lines. So I had previously seen David Levine give a talk on the topic of fake crowds and and he talks about the economics. He also talks about the particular American sensitivity to the phenomenon and how America seems to take so much offense. To the notion that someone in a crowd might be there with inauthentic motivation. So I thought that that was a really useful framework for where astroturfing is now, how it's used. And then, of course, there's been all these tendrils out to different connective tissue.
0: Totally. Jack, Mm -hmm. do you want to also say what your interest in it was and how the group came together?
4: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, this is something I've been interested in for a long time and it kept coming up in the discussions on the Discord. And so we started this breakout channel. For me, it was really this Coming to it as an artist, my impulse is to look at things and take it apart and try to figure out how it's made and how it's constructed. And one book that was really influential for me during those Occupy days was uh, Jean Baudrillard's uh, Spirit of Terrorism and the Requiem for the Twin Towers in 2002. And this book looked at 9-11 symbolically and tried to understand this aesthetically the same way you would try to understand like an art piece. And that was a methodology we brought into the discussion in the Discord to look at specific art pieces, uh, films, documentaries. And through that, we can talk about more abstract, mushy ideas of politics.
0: One thing that I think is so interesting for artists to do is to look at the aesthetics of different political gestures because they are free to think about them in abstract or counterintuitive ways. Yeah,
1: I mean, not to jump to like, Hypernormalization, which I guess we'll probably talk about. I always feel like Adam Curtis really hypes up Surkov and coming from the art world, and that somehow like imbues him with some sort of like mystical power, which is very weird because you never hear of that being seen as some sort of supernatural ability to like <laughs> understand things. But clearly, there is resonance with with performance art and this stuff here.
3: It's interesting that Surkov is insistently like framed as. Coming from this artistic background, I think it does something to like induce a kind of mythos and mis- mystery yes. yeah. uh, around Surkov.
0: Really quickly, can you give background on who Vladislav uh, Surkov is? Because I don't think everybody knows. Actually.
4: Yeah, so Vladislav Surkov was master of propaganda under Putin and used various effects of technology and public relations to sow doubt throughout the uh, political sphere in Russia. I mean, he did this by funding both sides of a conflict. So he would fund the um, pro Kremlin, like nationalist movements, and then also fund the uh, counter authoritarian groups. Importantly, he would reveal. That he was funding both groups, and so it became this condition where everyone thought that every political action was in some way funded by the Kremlin. So there was no way to uh, escape that.
1: Well, I just want to know, like, how exactly did he come from the art world? Because I was looking into this, and I couldn't find much of like a concrete, like,
0: also, Russian art world. Well, yeah, I didn't see. I couldn't end. find a CV. Is
1: all he went. Say. He
4: he was in like a theater group. I see. He did
1: like
3: some some yeah, plays in like, a theater group. Yeah, group. yeah <laughs> that seems more <laughs> likely. Okay. <laughs>
1: I mean, Bannon funded uh, indie films, so. I mean, it's Bannon's the- wealthy because of uh, Seinfeld. He's one of the major producers of Seinfeld. That's.
0: Well, wait. What? Yes. Really?
1: Yes. Steve Bannon has Seinfeld money.
0: He also yeah, like Steve it- Mnuchin. No.
1: similarly has yeah, his hand and uh, all sorts of stuff and his dad didn't.
0: Yeah. wait didn't Bannon also <laughs> fund Brown Bunny wasn't that wasn't he also he funded a lot of I think
1: he funded a lot of I don't know about that specifically but that would make a lot of sense <laughs> for sure
0: getting back to Hutin and Surkov and artists or non-artists just like the Soviet idea of what an artist might be was somewhat different than um, in the West there seems to be a different relationship to propaganda what was the discussion around that in the discord group how the ideological framework that you grow up in shapes your impressionability or your disillusionment with something like astroturfing.
3: And we already spoke to this a little bit in terms of Zirkov, like it's clear that it's coming from the state. There's no confusion really about where it's coming from. I mean, David Levine even points to a journalist who is speaking to a protester in Russia who like openly acknowledges that they recognize that my friends are being paid to be here. Isn't everybody being paid to be here? It's just understood that it's a spectacle. Whereas in the States, the reveal doesn't really happen uh, or it happens unevenly. Uh, it's not being administered from the top down from a, a state power.
4: Something that we were discussing in the in the discord, the goal is really the same as this like goal of disinterestedness to not believe in any kind of political project anymore. And you know, with Surkov, it was done through this like revealing of the state funding for everything. But in the States, it was the opposite. Nobody would say that they were making these claims by anything other than their personal beliefs. And that created the same disinterestedness. And now we are entering into this post-Trumpism, post-truth, hyper-normalization, like nonlinear warfare situation. And I think it's really hard for people to grapple with this situation.
0: They're like mourning their innocence in a way. I just wonder though, I mean, this connection to theater and that, when we were speaking earlier about the idea of Clack and the idea of Abramov, Abramov—how Abr- do you say it?
3: Roman Abramov, Russian politician, oligarch, also was involved in orchestrating theater happenings okay. in the audience. Well, so there,
0: there's this—you know—we know that politics is a theater. Like, there's been a million senior theses written on TV presidents, and oh my god, we were watching the Latrobe, Pennsylvania intro last night with Trump. Oh, I mean. My- Like, talk about like a horror show of a theater.
2: He drove the Air Force One in front of the stage. I mean, behind the stage, the plane pulls up while Eye of the Tiger is playing.
0: And the, the like the steps are like rolled yeah, over the door opens.
2: I, it was it was surreal and then of course he's I mean uh, what we can't even get into yeah all this. it's
0: it's really insane but one could also argue that Obama was it was also about a theater a theater of like respectability a theater of the neoliberal dream having been true I mean that was also a performance but so all this is to say is with all this belief in theater then what do you think it is about the American suffrage that is so disillusioned or so sad or so surprised when they realize that there are these other artificial elements. Like Trump pulling Air Force One in front of a group of people. That's like the most explicit Super Bowl style spectacle staging you can imagine. So why should it be any surprise that other elements are also being staged or also being like there's also artifice there?
3: Yeah, the, um, the article that we read talking about whether or not Surkov is a negative artist points to Boris Groy's idea of the self-designed individual, which is a, a term that we, we point to in the glossary. And the self-designed individual comes out of the postmodern condition. What we look for is we look for the cracks in the, the system in order to satisfy a certain kind of cynicism. That we have. We see the things are not working. And so instead of like seeking solutions, we look for the problems. And that satisfies our like compulsive desire to affirm our cynicism. There's also this idea that in the context of an ever increasing like imperative to self individualize and brand oneself, we create this total designed situation where everything is thought through in advance, there's a certain kind of artificiality to it, and that that also produces a case of total suspicion. So I think that there are these aspects of cynicism and suspicion that are particularly endemic in the American context, which play into this fear that we have about the authenticity of the crowd, but also make us ready to seek out where we can identify that, even if it's not a true identification. I can pull one of the quotes from this article. So, for Groys, as we no longer believe in the purity and sincerity of the modernist white cube, we seek the cracks to satisfy our cynicism. Only when we feel we have seen beneath the surface and glimpsed the ugly truth is our faith restored.
2: I think the other thing, though, is that there's a a part of this scenario that will drive one to... Pure cynicism because nothing can be trusted. But there's another mm-hmm. side of it that basically is like nothing can be trusted, but either side could be right, and people just faithfully choose a side as their truth. I mean, one of the reasons why fake crowds are so offensive of an idea is because they sort of ruin the like possibility of a of an actual good versus an actual evil, mm-hmm.
1: right? But um mm-hmm. I mean, I think it gives you this ability to like that you can perceive the real what's really happening because yeah, you always have this lens of like looking for these things and in, in a way it makes things Easier to understand.
0: J'adore Dior. Is that <laughs> what you're saying, Dan? Yeah,
1: do your like this. Do your own research thing. It's like okay, well, mm-hmm. do your own research and pick what you like. What tru- right. Pick your truth. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is sort of what you're saying about picking your sides. But I think it yeah. even can be like I don't need to pick a sides. You can just kind of be above it all and assume that that there's a few people that run everything and they're the ones that pay for their crowds and everything can be this causality that's like much Mm -hmm. cleaner than reality if you just think that that's constantly happening. And of course it is somewhat, but I just, I personally, I, I don't believe that like, it's the main driver of history, even if it's like mm-hmm. there's lots of actors pushing towards these things right now. So, yeah. Anyway. Like
4: Another thing we came across to explain the offensiveness of astroturfing was this idea of debited and credited crowds uh-huh. where the grassroots organizers and activists come out in a debited fashion. So they're spending their time, their free time to come out and protest and do activism in the hopes that someday down the line that debt will be paid back in the way of you know, the earth not dying or Medicare for all, whatever activist causes you're fighting for. Whereas the AstroTurf crowd is the credited crowd. They just get paid right up front. They get the, you know, $100 day rate to just come out, do the activism, and then they go home and they can wash their hands of it. And so this relationship, it, it uh, cheapens the quality of coming out for like a debited, authentic grassroots cause and wherever we fall on the political spectrum leftist liberal whatever we all do buy into the activism and advocacy
3: of the time i mean obviously like the drive towards conceiving of humans as homo economicus definitely factors in at some point we've accepted that our protest can just be exchanged for value like mm-hmm. what's the difference but this is where the debit and the credited idea comes in nicely because the the credited crowd they're, they're able to just wipe their hands clean of it, but they're also beholden to this external force. In the astroturf context, you see a certain kind of homogeneity of the activity. There's a certain kind of like prefabrication of signs. There's a certain kind of general tone and tenor. There's like a certain like durational aspect to the event. There's a scope of engagement. And these are the byproducts of the homo economicus, getting the most return out of your investment by putting as little in as possible. And it also has to do with the fact that because you're in this credited contractual relationship with the people that are sponsoring your your protest work or your crowd engagement, there's no real space for dissent. So I guess those are some like different distinctions that can be made and also point to some of the economic factors that are at play, not just the like cultural um, self-designed factors that we were speaking about.
1: I mean, just to talk about the economics of it. I mean, I. mean, we we're embedded so much in systems that are like dependent on accurate estimates about the size of audience, like rating systems and online advertising, that there's a betrayal if those things can't be trusted. And I think about like Facebook intentionally inflating their video count play and like the economic effect that had on all these people redistributing all their talent and money towards video production that was to no end. Mm. So I think like that there's something there that like though we don't trust anything, we do trust a crowd. And like that is something that's like Mm -hmm. a deep violation for that reason.
2: Maybe one just note, credited crowds aren't always just paid in cash, right? Like a credited crowd could be also a a post- Tester, As you call it in the glossary, I believe, someone who's really there just to get like dramatic Instagram selfies. Mm-hmm. Like, in a way, they're a credited crowd member, right? Because they're getting immediately paid in a sort of cultural or visual currency, even though they aren't astroturfed.
4: Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that kind of works into uh, something else I've been thinking about in this MLMification of politics, where politics has become like a multi-level marketing schema where you're being sold a political project that then you go around and make sure everybody believes in it. If they don't, you have to push them out of your life. And we see this with QAnon extremism showing up in real life where you're going to the protests as the post tester and, you know, stunting for um, Instagram in this MLM fashion.
2: That's a fucking amazing analogy. I have actually never heard it. That's really, really good. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: I mean, further to that, there are so many things. I mean, for one publications have been inflating their circulation numbers since the beginning of time, since of the course. Gutenberg press, right? Yes. right? So an advertiser... subscriptions
2: were subsidized a lot of times, right? Oh, like, of course. Subscribe $5 a year. Of course. Right? Yeah, so- yeah, that's
0: why, I mean, Art forum has been $10 since like 1970-something or whatever. That's why you would get, if you live in New York, I don't know if they still have this, but AM New York, they would pass it out to you when you're walking into the subway so that they could claim their circulation was however many... So those numbers have been falsified for a oh, long yeah. time. Oh yeah, does that
1: mean people yeah. have been no, gaming no, no, numbers no, no. As long as there's been numbers. Totally. You know, but, but, so, the yeah. interesting
0: thing, this introduction of Homo economicus into this is an interesting confluence. Now, Clack, you were speaking about the credited protester, the astroturfer, as like the er Homo economicus figure. But because I would actually. Maybe Who is challenge the Homo economicus? Is it the person who's
1: paying for it or is it the protester? Wait, or so both? Is there
2: any human that operates in purely economic?
0: Well, it's well, just someone no, who no, thinks no, no, rationally no. about like. Let's, I mean, of course, it's like a lot It's like a yeah. lo- It's a term that goes back a very long time. But of course, we think about it a lot in Foucault, and then more recently via Wendy Brown. Some people we asked Joshua Clover about this, and he's like, "I don't use the term neoliberalism," and he pushed back on the term altogether. But homo economicus, in the way that we think about it today, has to do more with attentional currencies and perceived value of self, um, incorporating yourself with a valence of attention or being like shored up by by your community as valuable. So to be an astroturfer or accredited protester would only make sense in the homo economicist logic if if you were a QAnon person and you were astroturfing for QAnon, then you could get value from your community for bragging about being like a QAnon. You're like getting double paid, right? You're getting like your nominal 100 bucks a day. And then you're also getting the social value of saying that you're. An astroturfer, but generally speaking, there would be lesser value for the astroturfer. The Russian kid at the protest, she doesn't care, is just getting paid. That's actually like a low homo economicus value. Yes, that person's getting a hundred bucks a day. I mean, but, it
2: depends on how rich or poor you are. Well,
0: no, I mean in, in the bigger sense. So just getting paid, I mean, there I mean, it's super interesting to think about astroturfing and day rates or whatever in the time of like the gig economy or total unemployment. I mean, this adds a whole nother layer. But like when we speak about homo economicus and neoliberalism we're thinking about bill i mean in my maybe it's like a gen xy understanding of it but i think we're thinking about like the new spirit of capitalism this idea that one has to have a certain social value in their community they have to be seen as having a social credit so your not just your story <laughs> your story as as your radio play pointed out exactly your narrative your story it, if it Precisely, Julianne. If it plays into, quote, quote, your story, then it's a high credit value, whether that's m- money is almost secondary to like the attentional narrative value of you doing this. Right.
4: Um, I think Harley is onto something where there is a low value of the like upfront credited paid astroturfer and then a high value to the like QAnon, MLMified, believing astroturf. It's like a second order effect where you create an astroturfed tea party that creates a flywheel. That really does create a situation where you can't just call something astroturfed and then disregard it completely.
3: Like One, one thing that we looked at during this process was Elias Canetti, who has this book called Crowds and Power. The way that he talks about crowds is in a very formal sense. like uh, and It really shapes the definition that we use in our glossary. It's this very poetic, like crowds always want to grow. The crowd is a desiring machine. It is temporal and must discharge and disband. It is ultimately entropic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But this, it points to the fact that when you gather people into a crowd, Regardless of the motivations that brought them into that formation, there is something that happens in that formal entity that produces secondary knock-on effects. Which is why we, we, we talk about the crowds with these debited, credited terms as debited crowds, like credited crowds, not necessarily credited protesters as individuals, it's the crowd that is within this debited or credited condition. But then you have on the second knock-on effects like Carly's talking about in the cultural sense and like Jack just spoke to where in the process of coming together, there are people who have their own individual motivations who are trying to organize additional activity where you have people who have come together uh, based around this contract and it produced this knock-on effects that move outside of the AstroTurf regime.
2: I, I think yeah, when, totally. when I, I, I would always frame this as like the reason you astroTurf is to kind of engineer an environment that facilitates like the tipping point for preference falsification mm-hmm. to occur, mm-hmm. right? It's like once you get to a certain perceived consensus of belief or you see a certain number of people sharing the same ideas, like you are going to more likely. Say that you agree with those ideas, or pretend to, or pretend until it's real. Than if you didn't see a sort of mass consensus developing around it, right? So yeah, you can't separate the astroturf from the greater political movement because eventually it becomes irrelevant whether they're astroturfers or people who had that preference falsification switch hit and are acting with crowd contagion or with the sentiment of the crowd. Mm-hmm. If that is a I think point. I think
3: this plays into the myth of disinterestedness, like this question that you're bringing up, little internet of is there actually some sort of difference in terms of political impact? One of the ways that we talk about this at SUS is through means of the Overton window and creating these wedge issues.
4: Yeah, totally. And it's um, it's actually very, very effective. We are living in a astroturfed reality. Every single policy think tank group in Washington is astroturf. is receiving money from Cook Brothers, petrochemical in- industry, or other like banking groups with the same vested interests. Every single policy group have the same political economy and produce the same kind of policy in the states. And like the only one, to my knowledge, that's not astroturfed is the People's Policy Project, it's like crowdfunded, and it's incredibly effective. I think astroturfing is really important to talk about and understand, but there's two other forms of corporate control that are on the list that I think are equally important that were uh, helpful for me in understanding my past experiences and activism and where things went awry. So the other two terms are bear hugging and uh, self-regulation. And bear hugging is the idea that if you are a group that's in power, a corporate group, and someone inside your organization is trying to like bring accountability for something instead of pushing them away and imposing them, you bear hug them and you smother them in funding and resources so that it's really hard for them to say that you're trying to shut them down. And my own experience at the college where I was a student post-grad working with other alumni, there was charges of racism, sexism in the uh, hiring process of tenured professors. And when we were trying to bring it to the state board and like open up a civil rights case, the HR department and the management at the school pushed it into a Title IX uh, investigation, which was focused on like one individual versus a school-wide investigation. Um, This was an example of bear-hugging, where they were like, we're going to stave off this wider form of accountability and transparency for like a more limited focused form of accountability that was preferable for them. You know, if I'd read this list, I would have handled it differently, perhaps.
0: Right. But I mean, as a student, you're actually a great stand in for the average person who to see something that they see is unjust, they call it out and then they're totally overwhelmed. I mean, what is a democracy when an individual citizen doesn't really have any form of recourse? Right.
4: Yeah, yeah, totally. That was a big part of what made this project important for me was to still techniques of control In the hopes that by putting it out there, people will be able to read this and be a little bit more cognizant of the way these things are going to play out. And instead of every time the corporation or the government tries to like subsume your protest, you like throw up your hands. You're like, no, this is inevitable. This is what happens. These are the techniques. This is going to happen. You have to be aware of that and have some sort of countermeasure. The other one is a self-regulation idea that polluting company will do their own investigation to how much they're polluting and then be like, look, we have, we're putting all this data out there and we're actually showing that we're reducing it by like, you know, 2% every year. So we don't need government regulation. And it's something that comes up all the time. Like, you know, activists come forward and try to bring accountability and the organization is like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. We love it. We're going to form a committee. You know, we're going to form a task force. We're going to put you on the task force. Don't ever join the task force. Don't ever join the committee. (laughs) Don't join the organization like be critical of it be outside of it they're just trying to like subsume you and
1: I we haven't I want to talk maybe about crisis actors a little bit Think of Soros. You think of the Koch brothers. Those are like the astroturfers. And I think it is interesting, of course. The Koch brothers, you know, they have interested. They're in the oil and chemical industry, and there's astroturfing, and it is very. And
0: the term astroturf itself.
1: It was called chemgrass originally, (laughs) which I looked up, which is really interesting. And of course, it's just like a sort of byproduct of of the refining industry from the '60s. And also, I mean, sometimes you know, having astroturf is preferable to real grass. That's why it exists.
0: (laughs) It holds up. It's better for playing
1: games on. It's better. It's like,
0: that's so good. Astroturfing is better for playing games on, and that's I mean, the line I wanted to hear. It's, well, <laughs> you
4: know, well, I mean, I like, like
1: it requires less water. You know? Right? Yeah, also, there's oh, just yes. the, the water it. But I do think You're there's something about with that. astroturfing turfing mm-hmm. that it, like, that implies a private non-governmental force, right? Whereas crisis actors, and I'm sure there's other titles or, or figures that we could think of besides crisis actors, that's government ops, that's ops, And also, like, ops are not private. So I just wonder, mm. like, wh- wh- how do you make a distinction between like private actors and governmental actors with, with this kind of stuff? And is there any distinction, actually? Because intuitively, it seems like there is, but.
4: I think it doesn't matter if they believe the lie they're saying or not, it has the same effect. So whether or not it's coming from the CIA or from a CIA contractor, it's essentially the same thing. And I think that the relationship between the government and private industries, especially like with this like surveillance capitalism, where you opt into the surveillance and then they give that over the government, it's hard. But it's, maybe it's, there's know, less because, of a, because it's hard to make a distinction.
1: Maybe there's less of like a homo economicus imperative because it's not just like a businessman doing it. And I think there's not necessarily. The same need for like efficient return on investment in the same way. If you have but kind of unlimited like funds,
0: Bezos level.
1: You have I mean, funds, and don't yeah.
0: isn't that one of the arguments of like the this tier of Bezos level or even Soros level wealthy acts on the state level? So essentially, yeah. they're mm-hmm. they're almost homologous, except for one has to pretend it's beholden to the people, and the other it doesn't.
1: The, I feel like yes, yeah, sure, but there's more like there's sure, more secret I, money. Over, CIA yeah, has right, more, more access, access money, to like right. secret money, and more, probably
0: yeah. more internet. I'm guessing probably also more weird international relations that it's trying to maneuver. Right,
1: and like the technology to do it, like the yeah. social technology to do it, yeah. not just like yeah. money only. Yeah. yeah, anyway.
0: And the the crisis actor
4: thing is like has there ever actually been a documented case of the government CIA whatever using crisis actors? The, the only I, mean, I haven't looked into too
1: much, but yeah. like well I, there I, there I, I, there, is, there is years ago there was like a crisis actor agency that I was thinking about I was gonna do some piece and hire some crisis actors. Blah blah blah. <laughs> Hell didn't, yeah. d- didn't do it, but you know they were there. They existed for disaster simulations, so they really right, were. Right, it, right, isn't, right. It, it is training, a thing, yeah. and of course, government like it was governments that were paying for it, and that was so. There was this kernel of truth to the whole thing. Sandy Hook was, I think, really mm. when it took off. Although totally. it existed before, yeah. right. there was all this you know linking to this crisis actor website, and there was one in England too. And like the things that they're simulating are. Very very often terror attacks and stuff. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's like outside of the simulation. Yeah. It's not so hard to make that leap into them doing it for other things. Right. But the crisis actors was really interesting
4: for us in relationship to something that little internet put out there in like a previous podcast about this idea of human hosts and avatars for capital where capitalism as a form of, you know, artificial intelligence in these markets acting in the world with its own agency and desires. And then there, there needs to be these human hosts that act out these things in real life. Crisis actors becoming an extrapolation of that where they're these avatars of capital. I don't know if we want to go into this, but it brought back to this idea of a de-virtualization where the vast wealth Needs to be de virtualized into the real world.
3: I started picking up on Dan's question about psychological operations. One thing that we came across was the term bad jacketers and bad jacketing. Uh, and this is actually a term that has its origins in the Black Panther Party and state agents infiltrating the organization in order to sort of cast aspersions and as gossip about various members within the organization in order to get them expelled and in some cases killed. The, the BSA, the Black Socialists of America, talk a little bit about this, Jamal Joseph in particular, where he talks about like, as an organization, one thing that you can do to combat bad jacketing is to just have a policy of, if someone comes to you with a grievance and says, this person has said this, on principle, you say, no, I, I know that person. They wouldn't be like that. Let's wait until we can all get into a room, talk about this, maybe without our cell phone so there's no taping or recording happening. And so there are very like direct strategies that counter infighting or gossiping that one could argue is the end game or the most insidious aspects of counterintelligence. So it doesn't necessarily address the like, private versus public element but i think it points to one strategy that organizations can adopt if they're committed to resisting psychological operations is to be very grounded in an anti-gossip mentality and i also think that that connects to some of the frustrations that we have felt with astroturfing and how it's often lobbed as an unsubstantiated claim a form of gossip without having any sort of like back up for that. And then I guess the other side with what Jack is talking about and the, the de-virtualization, Levine talks about how with the ability to like hire audiences and fake crowds and to do that virtually, there's even more imperative to show up physically.
2: I mean, de-ver- I could imagine de-virtualization as a concept is applying to, you know, any sort of almost politics today. You have this uh, idea or ideology or utopian vision that you're largely discussing online that you want to make real. I mean, mm-hmm. politics and activism is sort of a de-virtualization project inherently of uh, making real your, the discussions ideologically or sort of utopian Which is a vision. Which a good thing, right? Often. right. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a good thing. thing as long as it does port.
0: Right. <laughs> to, right. To I mean it's a good way you try um, because then you get out of these theory loops where it's just about a battle of words detached from material conditions. Of course it is
2: also though yep. uh, trying to make a simulation real. I mean I also right. see I see mm-hmm. virtualization is kind of a something that where there's a lot of creep to a lot of different aspects of society yeah. right now and yeah, yeah. same with game theory as being a, a type of thinking that also has uh, has a lot of creep into mm. ways of thinking about the world in that, I mean, this kind of Silicon Valley idea that everything can be com- computed or quantified, right? Yeah. It's very tied to computational capitalism as a big project,
3: right? If you're
0: playing New Models Bingo, be sure to <laughs> <laughs> put your token yeah. on the. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've talked about <laughs> you yeah. say?
3: I, I would very briefly just like to, to cut in on that because I think like three terms that might be useful here is like the virtual in the sense of the like potential, the actual sense of like how that virtual is actualized and the de-virtual in the sense that like it kind of precludes the virtuality. It takes mm-hmm. virtuality as we understand it and it directly maps it on very brashly, brute force, sort of following within the logics of game theory.
0: Mm. I mean, if we were speaking about like capital and human hosts and we're talking about astroturfing, I wondered if you can tell me where the line is between an influencer and an astroturfer.
3: Uh, I haven't really thought about it. (laughs) Although I do think we like think about astroturfers as exerting influence.
4: Yeah, I think that the distinction that I would make is that the influencer is trying to like brand themselves and get money from companies and like do like native advertisements. Whereas an astroturf person that's like hired to show up at a crowd is not necessarily trying to like take on that brand for themselves. They're just a body in space. Whereas influencers are trying to like inhabit the politics that they're being like paid to espouse.
0: And that, I would say, is a difference between homo economicus and someone who is simply being paid to be an astroturfer. That so site of self-capitalization, that is the definition of homo economicus today.
4: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you see this with the memes where um, the uh, Bloomberg campaign tried to astroturf this meme campaign. And it was so transparently terrible. Right. It's like that's what that's the aesthetic of Astroturf. Whereas like influencer meme accounts ate this up and spat it out. Totally. I think that's an example of like how uh, there's certain aspects of dissent and protest that can't be astroturfed, like a meme, for instance.
0: Yeah.
1: I just, yeah, How can we spot the difference in what's going on today in terms of these things? That's and also in
0: terms of Q, for instance. Well,
1: exactly. And just like, yeah, what like if we could just like list some things and well, like, are they real or not? I think would be.
2: I mean, the Internet Research Agency, right, is always engaging in turfing. I mean, and who
1: knows, however many other, I mean, many, yeah, and many, how many, many, many other states? I mean, yeah,
2: because yeah, well, that was the model that I mean, right.
1: yeah. I, presumably, also this like this every, stuff is happening exponentially more than it was even four years ago. And
2: every country has yeah. like a department, has a, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah,
4: and I think that I mean that was an important through line for us while we were developing this project. So, like, what are the static? Qualities of an astroturf protest that translate beyond these borders, and one thing we came to was this uh, this term uh, "uncanny rally," which is kind of like a you know like an <laughs> "uncanny valley," where nice. when you go to these um, anti-mask protests or the uh, Q Nazi queer front protests that that undercover Carly attended, <laughs> there's this uncanniness where there's a mismatch between the aesthetic protest and what they're actually calling for. So they're coming out and they're speaking truth to power, but then what they're calling for is a dictator, you know, Russia to come in and like take it over. So it's like, we're speaking truth to power. We want more power to oppress us. Yeah. And like the same thing with anti-lockdown, you know, they were coming out and being like, we want government to be more negative. (laughs) We want government to like, you know, make us all sick. It's like very uncanny. And I think that's something that, you can kind of like be aware of then you know maybe that's one way to kind of identify something that's coming from like an astroturfed place. Do
1: you think there's ever any things that are just intentionally made to look like they're astroturf that aren't astroturfed? Is there any power to actually looking more astroturf yes. than it is? I'm trying to think of an example. But- yes.
4: Well there's you know this idea of like bear huggings you know, Black Lives Matter protests are coming out and doing like silent protests and like die-ins and very powerful activist images. And then you see it on stage at the D20 in a sizzle reel in sepia tone black and white. So it looks like it's from the seventies mm. and it's just like very you know, benign activist images. And, and that is intentional. Like they're not showing the die-ins. They're not showing the powerful images. They're showing the like soft stuff to kind of be like, oh, this is what BLM is now. Mm. Mm.
3: Yeah, as, as frustrating as this might sound even to myself, I think, AstroTurfing relies on aesthetics as its foundation. And Jack's example of the sizzle wheel from the protests that have been happening this summer is an example where the lens of AstroTurfing comes into play. But I mean, I, unfortunately, I think one of the things that we've discovered, one of the claims that we might make is that there actually isn't really, like at the level of impact, there's maybe not so large of a difference between whether or not something is AstroTurfed or grassroots or otherwise mm in the crowd formation, different activities like spawn themselves. And that's where the action happens. So part of the reason why we made a glossary of terms around astroturfing is to give people who use astroturfing as the predominant lens to view these phenomenons and to sort of sort out the veracity of whether or not they should pay attention to them or not or align with them is that it gives them a whole range of other terms that they can tap into that allow them other inroads into assessing and analyzing. Like it's not whether or not it's astroturfed or not, but here are all these other things that surround the phenomenon that we identify as astroturfing or that I right. just think that like. Astroturfing is a
1: strategy, not a tactic. Yeah. Now with a glossary. Yeah. You can actually like analyze what's happening much more. And also I think. It's just a dismissive thing to say something is astroturf. It's uh-huh. not a way of understanding it better. It's also right.
2: in the tool set of the public now, right? Like, remember, like, moves like Bloomberg. Like, mm-hmm. there was like this fake, <laughs> like, that just some Bernie activists, I believe, if I remember correctly, made to like discredit Bloomberg. Uh, they right. like paid yeah. people $20 off Craigslist to like learn the moves like Bloomberg dance, to like playing a pun off of Jedge's like Panic at the Disco High Hopes dance, but moves like, moves like Bloomberg was even more absurd. But it's like, I mean, this is in the toolbox now, not only of state actors, but of grassroots right. organizers yeah. exactly. organizing yeah. astroturfs I mean, yeah. I also have to, Yeah, why like not? I think
1: Brad's right. recent work is a very exemplary exactly. of that. The, the, pra- the yeah. Bragger, you stuff is like really doing... It's meta astroturfing, but it's like really effective. Clearly, right? People, yeah, I mean, yeah, too effective. Maybe scary. Do you want to effective. say for a
0: second <laughs> what that is for posterity? Well, just, take? I
1: mean, yeah, uh, No,
0: okay. I don't. <laughs> Check <laughs> it out, Brad Chermell, great gonna, artist.
4: Dan, I mean, Dan, you astroturfed a uh, a, a TEDx event. Oh, that is <laughs> so true. I mean, yeah,
1: it was a what? real one. That's true. Yes, it was officially a TEDx event in Liechtenstein. You're right.
2: <laughs> I mean, you already see the astroturfing in these tools being totally normalized. What kind of new metrics or sort of public perception around them are going to develop?
0: Right. Right. right, Yeah. I wonder what percentage of like leftist like campaign money goes towards astroturfing at this point anyway. I mean,
2: I mean, the data is still a bit of yeah. a mystery, I'm guessing, unless you all came across any. Uh, spicy stats.
4: No, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff is like intentionally obscured, but one thing to point out there is that if you have genuine politics that genuinely speak to people that want to engage with them, you don't need to astroturf. Like True. people were paying, donating money to Bernie to make campaigns, make memes, and so. Right. Like if you don't, you don't need all of those tricks if you are actually, you know, the real deal.
0: That's a great point. I mean, maybe that's a point to end on as we go into the U.S. election, and also for people to think more broadly who maybe live in Germany and are unsettled by this queer fund phenomenon, or you know, or elsewhere. Um, what are some things to keep in mind, taking astroturfing as a given?
4: I would say to be aware of it and to not give too much stock in the kind of main narratives that are being given out. For instance, the left is a mess and that it's completely useless. I just don't believe that. I think that if you're trying to organize something that's different than capitalism, it's not going to look like capitalism. It's going to look different. So we have to be really critical of those messages that are coming in, as well as trying to not Um, get too hung up in the specific protest events or election results and try to look at the powerful and important changes in political economy that are happening now. We're seeing tons of people in the U.S. recognizing that there is a new political economy emerging where you can run and win Mm -hmm. on a crowdsourced campaign. And that is really powerful and that's going to have a much longer impact. Totally.
3: You know, one thing that we've thought about with this class is that people can, you know, take it and use it at their events as something to hand out like Jack says, you don't need to astroturf something, but you can use some of the strategies uh, and techniques that are here in, in the reverse as a as a de yeah.
4: yeah, totally. It, like you can you can recruit for the left inside the astroturf protest. You can accelerate the bear hug to drain institution of resources. You can use a self-regulatory body to bring actual accountability and transparency to an organization. Like these techniques are actually not bulletproof. We can mount challenges to them. It's possible.
0: Absolutely. Well, so this has been the Agency of Shifting Uncertain Situations, SUS. Thank you, Jack Ricker and Clack Auden for joining us. And uh, this will be available on the New Model site for download, distribution, firing. Um, Jack and Clack, is there anyone that you want to shout out that's been central to working on this project or to your thinking?
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, I just want to really thank everyone in the Discord group that shared really great resources and engaged in the discussion, as well as people that came to the uh, film screening that we did inside the Discord and had a talk back after that. It was really um, fruitful for developing these ideas, as well as the podcast FOH, that's at Pod on Instagram, it's my friends uh, Lillian and Kelly in New York city. And they do this podcast front of house or fuck Out of here. Uh, they're really mean and funny um, talking about labor relations in the New York city food and beverage scene and kind of like emerging aesthetics there. And I produced a uh, Patreon episode last year that was called a lefty quiz show where I put together a bunch of like lefty political terms and then they quizzed each other. And some of the terms that were on that list filtered into this list, so I just wanted to go kind of shout them out. They're really funny and great POV on um, labor in the food and beverage industry. That's like not theoretical and it's like really funny. Check it out. Cool.
0: Cool. Thank you, Jack and Clack. We'll see you on the Discord. And thanks a lot for your time this evening, morning. It's great to be yes. on. Thank you.
2: Of Ray Bradbury's The Crowd. There was the feeling of movement in space. Where the crowd came from, he didn't know. They were a ring of shifting, compressing, changing faces over him, looking down, looking down. How swiftly a crowd comes, he thought, like the iris of an eye compressing in from out of nowhere. They had all come from, where? The immediate and the accident-shocked world. The crowd looked at him and he looked back at them and did not like them at all. There was a vast wrongness to them. He couldn't put his finger on it. They were far worse than this machine-made thing that happened to him now. Through the windows, he saw the crowd looking in, looking in, that crowd that always came so fast so strangely fast, to form a circle, to peer down, to probe, to gawk, to question, to point, to disturb, to spoil the privacy of a man's agony by their frank curiosity. The crowd got there too quickly. Thirty seconds after the smash they were all standing over me and staring at me. It's not right they should run that fast. There's always a crowd. There's a universal law about accidents. Crowds gather. They always gather. And like you and me, people have wondered year after year why they gathered so quickly and how. I know the answer. I've tried getting to them, but someone always trips me up. I'm always too late. They slip into the crowd and vanish. The crowd seems to offer protection to some of its members. They have one thing in common. They always show up together at a fire, or an explosion, or on the sidelines of a war, at any public demonstration of this thing called death. It was all a very silly, mad plot, like every accident. They were all around him, these judges and jurors, with the faces he had seen before. Through his pain, he counted their faces. I know what you're here for, he thought. You're here just as you're at all accidents. To make certain the right ones live and the right ones die. And that's the way it's been since time began. When crowds gather, you murder much easier this way. You're the crowd that's always in the way. Using up good air that a dying man's lungs are in need of. Using up space he should be using to lie in, alone tramping on people to make sure they die. That's you. I know all of you. I guess I'll be a member of your group now. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you to Jack Ritger and Clack Auden of Shifting Uncertain Situations for joining us. You can find Suss's AstroTurfs of Offense on newmodels.io, including a downloadable PDF version suitable for printing and sharing. AstroTurfs of Offense is an immense testament to what the New Models community is capable of, and projects like this one keep our fire burning. There are a few new projects brewing on the Discord, and we will certainly share updates with you soon. We want to give a quick shout out to Path, with two hsco and to all the creators and thinkers who are part of the New Models community. If you'd like to join us, please visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Finally, thank you to everyone who is going to come and ride roller coasters with me on my birthday. COVID-19 smacked down our plans, but we'll organize something else IRL in the near future. This has been a New Models special report. Our main hub is newmodels.io. Our community is joined through patreon.com newmodels, and we welcome your emails at desk at newmodels.io. See you next episode.